Hello, and welcome to the Spin Up Science podcast, where we explore the interface of science and startups and share the journeys of scientists turning their discoveries into companies. I'm Dr. Ben Miles, a PhD physicist turned CEO, interested in how ideas turn into action. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Simon Bates, CEO of Actuation Lab, a spin-out company from the University of Bristol that's taking inspiration from origami to redefine mechanical components that haven't changed in over 100 years. Simon and his team are using modern composite materials to help them build the next generation of engineered devices. We span out the company around actuators, the name of the company being Actuation Lab. So that was the first bit of hardware we sort of got our eyes on. So actuators are components that make machines move. any industry worldwide, if you've got automation, you've got actuators. So these could be motors, hydraulic pistons, pneumatic pistons, these sorts of things. When you ask Simon to see what it is that they are working on, he will present you with something that looks like a long carbon fiber wrapped cylinder covered in protruding triangular fins that run the length of the object. When the device is activated by applying air pressure to it, the actuator contracts, almost like an artificial muscle. It feels very counterintuitive the first time you watch it, but by attaching one end to a fixed point and the other end to a valve or to a piston, this motion allows the team to actuate other devices. What I was really interested in understanding was where did the idea, where did the inspiration actually come from and how did Simon and his team start to find application for their idea? With nearly every academic startup, you almost always start with a bit of research that you think is cool. And I, it was certainly what happened with us. So, But he'd been working with some origami structures and said, OK, if I can turn this structure basically into a tube and we pressurise it, we can get a contraction. So it's quite counterintuitive. You put pressure inside something, you usually expect it to expand. But, but he'd come up with a structure, which we filed a patent on, that would contract. And we started off thinking, this is going to go into robotics. It's going to change the world of robotics. Obviously, it's a single component, right? We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to give them a single component thing that never wears out to be super light. Great, wonderful. But then you go and speak to industry, and you find out that roboticists are like, yeah, well, DC motors are great, thanks. They're, like, they've come on so much in the last few years that we don't need your pneumatic solution here. So you're sort of like, bummer. We've got a cool piece of technology and no application. Who wants this bit of kit? What Simon describes here is by no means a unique experience to the average academic team trying to commercialize their research. The problem is age old and it's having a piece of fantastic technology to hand, but having yet to find exactly where it resonates with the marketplace. Finding that elusive product market fit requires keeping an open mind about where it might be applied and committing to talking to a lot of different people. So that's exactly what Actuation Labs did. And they eventually found someone that they had a conversation with that gave them a push in the right direction. We spoke to an ex-director of a big actuator company that works works in the energy industry. And he was just like, this has got an application here. (laughs) We were like, ah, okay, so six miles down the road. Um, And then we started digging around and you sort of go, okay, yes, we built something with essentially no moving parts or a single moving part, but actually the fact we can take all metal components out and have a completely composite material. That's the valuable thing. And so it all sort of came together and then the story where you're like, ah, there it is. That's what we do with it. Actuation Lab had found the value that they could add to industry. Now they needed to dig deeper to understand the problem and work out how they could develop a solution that would actually be adopted. So we looked at the energy industry, oil and gas, uh, looked at the marine industry, and you've got these big pneumatic pistons. So 
piston rod moving in and out of the cylinder, and then they'll be bolted to something like a valve to open and close a valve. This could be for ballast tanks on a ship, or it could be on an offshore oil rig, controlling millions of pounds of oil flowing through. But that big piston that's on top hasn't really changed its design since, well, it wouldn't look unfamiliar to a railway engineer from the 1800s. So you've got you've got big pieces of metal sliding past each other, you've got wear components. They work to an extent, quite inefficient, but you put that out in a saltwater atmosphere and this thing just corrodes. Metals in a saltwater atmosphere will always corrode. That's an accepted part of the life cycle. But it turns out that corrosion of actuators in this particular circumstance can have some really serious consequences. If you take oil and gas for an example, you have this actuator sits out in the sea and then the outside of this thing corrodes. The traditional makeup of this thing is you have a, a massive spring in there, sort of, sort of saying these things are fail safe, essentially air fails and then bang, it'll close. But that spring is a huge amount of stored energy. If you've got the outer that has rusted, then you've got this perfect projectile that if the spring is compressed and the end runs rusts off, and that'll get fired across your platform. And that's happened on a number of occasions. It's not isolated just to the UK, it's a worldwide problem. The other side of it is the operational thing, is if these things are degrading, they're in often hard to reach places. They're complicated pieces of kit, so you're not gonna open one of these things up. So they quite often get left, and you get degradation, you know, five to 10 years lifetime for this sort of thing. And if you're controlling a million pound process, you want that thing to be reliable for 20 years, and you want it to not break down when you don't expect it. Having found the problem they believed they could target, the Actuation Lab team set to work understanding what the solution needed to do in order to meet that market need. The sensible solution from our point of view is create something from composite materials that don't corrode in these, in these atmospheres, corrosive atmospheres. So if we can create an actuator which has less moving parts, won't corrode, and will just continually work for much longer than the current actuator, so we're like, right, as engineers, how do we design an actuator from composite materials without looking at that piston design? How do you, how do you create it? And the way we came up with that was going, create origami, sort of slightly left field, origami structure that can fold and use composite materials for their excellent fatigue resistance and strength. And so we ended up creating an actuator um, that was made out of composite materials that we were gonna go, we can retrofit this onto valves. Simon and his team have extensive background in 3D printing, so when it came time to start testing their ideas, they started with the tool sets that they knew well and began to refine their initial prototypes. A lot of 3D printing, so it's worth saying, everything we did in, in, in the first place was only possible because we had a background in 3D printing, because the things we're making are completely wacky shapes and, and it would cost you so much money to prototype these things any other way. So using the skills in flexible 3D printing, we were able to make these prototypes. And we're like, great, now we need to transition to proper composite materials. The transition from 3D printing to composite materials was gonna be a big jump. Composite materials, for those of you that haven't heard that term before, are materials that are made from a combination of two other materials. Typically, something like carbon fiber and epoxy resin or a plastic are combined to give the flexibility and strength improvements that mean that these sorts of devices can outperform their metal counterparts. We had actuator components which would contract and give you the, the forces you want, but at generally low pressures, so lower than you'd run them um, in industry. And now we're in the lab in the NCC um, working with high strength composite. We've managed to max out the, the, the air pressure, the shop air here with our actuators now, which was like a seven fold increase or something on what we previously had since we've been here over the last three months, so that's great. 
The Actuation Lab team are making fantastic progress so far. They admit they still have a long way to go before they are ready for industry. I asked Simon what he thinks are the next steps and what he's actually working on at the moment. We've got things that, that work at the sort of TRL 4-ish level, <laughs> but, um, but it's now the next 18 months is get us to something that we can actually bolt onto a structure, be that a valve or a duct. So there's the, the actuator bit, which is this standalone, funky-looking origami thing. And then there's the how do you bolt it into a wider system. There's big work packages on how do you make this into a valve actuator. You've got to make this linear action slightly rotational. You've got to make sure you keep the part count down. So we're building prototypes of the, the, the larger systems so that we can put a thing on a desk and go, look, look at this thing. Would you help support this as we go forward? And then also increasing the performance and the longevity. What I really wanted to understand was how is Simon actually starting to find that resonance with industry and how is he trying to get people to buy into the idea and start working with Actuation Lab? At the moment, we're sort of going, okay, we're going to make, we're, we're making this thing to the size that we can make and then it's sort of tailoring it to the specific applications we go forward. But we've got, we've got plenty of industry interest contacts in the valve industry who sort of said like, you know, develop this a little bit further, get your pressures up and then, then we can work towards this valve, this valve, this valve. It's now pinning that interest and excitement into, right, make that thing. And that's my job is, well, one of my jobs is to go, right, pin that one down, and that's the one we need to make, and that's the size and spec. As Simon started to touch on his role as the CEO within the company, I was interested to find out more about what it was that his day-to-day -day work life actually looked like. An early stage CEO, I always find it a bit of a funny term because, it, you know, it's not the same as a big company CEO. So it's all very varied, but like, for example, this week, we're putting together applications for funding. And so I'll spend my time going through these, trying to convince people that what we're doing is a wonderful idea and it's going to save the world, because it is. But, um, but I've got to convince people of this so that we can then win R&D contracts with things like Innovate UK. But then I also find myself, um, because we're a small team and we've got a lot of admin to do, I'm also the bookkeeper. So I'm also doing that. And I try and do the admin stuff so the other guys can continue doing the cool engineering and push technology on, because that's ultimately what's going to get us to get us to products. So. I spend a lot of my time working with researchers that have transitioned from their research field into positions where they are leading companies forward. I was really interested to understand how Simon was finding his new role and how his research background had prepared him for the position. Going from PhD prepares you quite well. You spend a lot of time figuring out problems and then things not going quite right. And I've certainly found that at the start of doing this. And I wasn't too worried about everything looking a bit silly and things going wrong because you sort of learn that, you sort of get worn down a bit doing the PhD system and I know everything that everything that I did half of the stuff doesn't work and then you have to just move on to the next thing so you, you build a bit of resilience there so that that prepared quite well I think th there's a few things you have to unlearn though um, from the PhD experience so so yes there's the, the the cool science bit in developing that but then there's the are you solving real problems bit and that is, the, that is the main thing that when you go from PhD to where the money just sort of comes from somewhere and, and someone's got a grant and these kind of stuff, um, where you go, right, there has to be a business plan here. And like our answer in the first place was just all over the place. And we didn't really, we didn't really know. And you go, okay, we've got to figure this out. You find when you start the business, you're like, this is actually our thing. I'm putting my heart into this and it's got to be a success. And it's not just a throwaway paper to put out there. I want to see a bit of technology out in industry. So I've got to wholeheartedly believe that this thing is going to be a success. I agree with a lot of the things that Simon brings up here, but we don't see that many researchers turning into entrepreneurs that start their own companies. I asked Simon at what point did he realize that starting a company was something that he wanted to do. After the PhD, I went and worked for Bath, Bath Uni for a while. 
did some cool projects there. And then I came back to Bristol, I sort of continued with some work there on 3D printing and things. You sort of go, don't quite know where this is going. I'm doing some cool projects, this is really good. But I've definitely got some ambitions to sort of to do my own thing. And I'd set up a little 3D printing consultancy with my flatmate before, do something a little bit entrepreneurial. Not a very efficient setup doing things in your flat with a with one 3D printer. In a manufacturing sense, it, it, we didn't make a huge amount of money, but you learn a few things. Sort of coming back after that, there was then the sort of, I think, an, a camaraderie between myself and my two colleagues about where is this research that we are all currently doing going? I was working on 3D printing flexible structures for shock absorbers for lifeboats, so completely different to what we're doing here. Uh, Tom was working on some other 3D printing, but Michael was looking at artificial muscles and how you make efficient structures. Uh, he was actually looking at solar tracking with light-stimulated muscles, so completely off the wall, forgetting actuators or anything like that at the moment, just the different bits of research we were doing. And it's sort of just like, I don't know where I sit in academia. We're going to just try and progress up the academic ladder and, and do that sort of thing. And that, that didn't have the appeal of, do we just crack on and this bit of tech that we've been working on, could, could we form a business around that? The excitement that that then drew out of us and then, then we, we had over the next sort of year or so when we were like, let's explore this, we were like, this is great. And when I look back at it now, I'm like, I'm really glad we've done this. <laughs> like, I, if I'd found myself a nice academic job, that would have been fine. But it wouldn't give me the excitement. Actuation Lab are working hard to modernise their industry. Their founders bring together a diverse set of research disciplines from 3D printing to composite materials, while taking inspiration from origami, an art form that's been around for over a thousand years. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Dr. Simon Bates, CEO of Actuation Lab. I'm Dr. Ben Miles, and you've been listening to a Spin Up Science podcast. See you next time.